If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. It's a joy to mark with you the resurrection of our Savior. Christianity, Christian faith, is not a philosophy. It is not a set of ideas or principles to which people adhere or even doctrines to believe, though there are doctrines which we do believe. But the doctrines are rooted in historical events. They are not the product of people's cleverness or imagination. What we believe is that God has acted personally and decisively in history through Jesus Christ. The resurrection is not an idea. The resurrection is an event. The resurrection took place 2,000 years ago. Christ died on the cross on a Friday night just outside Jerusalem, and on Sunday morning, just before the sun rose, the stone was rolled back, and he became alive again bodily from the dead. His royal heart began to beat, and he stepped forth from that tomb, the conqueror of death and hell and the giver of eternal life. And therefore, we have every reason to rejoice. I want to pick it up with you this morning in Matthew's gospel. We're going to read a couple of passages, Matthew and Revelation chapter 1. Matthew, we left it Friday night, you'll remember. Matthew chapter 27, Pilate said to the soldiers, um, go and make the tomb as secure as you can. That didn't work out so well, did it? So they did the best they could to hold him in, but you can't keep truth in the grave. And so we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 28. If you have a Bible, whether a print version or an app, and you want to follow along, I invite you to do so. And then we're going to read as well from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. So Matthew 28, and I want you to notice as we read these couple of passages together, the occurrences of the word fear. And we'll make a note about that as we as we go along this morning. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The guards who had been sent to keep a dead man in the tomb when he came out became as dead men themselves. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Years after this event, one of those apostles that Jesus told those women to go and speak to about the resurrection, a man who had spent his life faithfully preaching 
the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus across the ancient Mediterranean world, a man named John was for his trouble in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and Christ appeared to him. The resurrected Christ appeared to him again. And John writes these words, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Would you say it with me? Fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written would be at work in our hearts so that they might be inscribed there as well. And we thank you for this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I was in the chapel service with the middle school of the Spanish River Christian School earlier this week. Um, You are a very friendly crowd. Can I tell you, it's absolutely terrifying to speak to middle school students and hope at my age I have anything to offer them at all. But I engaged them in an unscientific poll to help me with today's message. And here was the question, how many of you like scary movies. I can report to you this morning uh, that fully 75% of the middle school students raise their hands loving scary movies. I myself do not like scary movies, mostly because they're scary. That's really, that's really the deal. I've just never been a big fan of fear. I don't quite get this kind of ambiguous relationship we have with fear, whereby we will actually go to a cinema and pay somebody 20 bucks to terrify us. I'm not sure why we do that. Makes me feel alive. Makes me not fall asleep. That's what happens to me. Fear is, of course, in the United States, a $40 billion industry every year. Fear is used continuously in business, in politics, in the media, in order to drive eyeballs and attention to where we want people to be so we have their attention. Fear is an incredible motivator of human behavior. The Weather Channel knows this. (laughs) You will never see anybody on the Weather Channel come on and go, it could be a, a, a storm, a big one. It might be, we're not sure. That's not what they ever say. They come on and they'll say, this is going to be the greatest storm in history. And I and my film team are here on the beach waiting for it to come in. So we can capture every moment for you. <laughs> and you know they've got, a, they've got a fan over there blowing stuff, you know. You know that's what's going on. And you're like, I've got to watch this. I've got I to gotta see this apocalyptic moment as it comes ashore. There's all kinds of fears that people have. We have what um, one Rolling Stone reporter wrote as a amygdala hijacking. The amygdala is the center on the brain where all the neurons fire that go off when we encounter something which we perceive to be a threat, either presently or in the future. The present driving fear, the future driving anxiety. Everyone knows that this will seize our attention, and many things do. 
In a poll conducted 2020, Americans listed their number one fear as corruption in the government. Wow. Number two, they were afraid of civic unrest. Number three, they were afraid of COVID. That seems reasonable, given all that's taken place. Um, hurricanes, way down the list at 31. Like they didn't talk to enough people in Florida, did they? <laughs> Clowns, way down there at five. Number one on my list, by the, by, by the way, iguanas, just so we're clear about that. I, those things scare the living daylights out of me. That, it's a Jurassic creature coming towards me. I'm like, I don't want nothing to, nothing to do with you. Why is fear so present with us? Why does the very first thing that Jesus resurrected from the dead say to the people who he encounters, don't be afraid, don't be afraid? 365 times in the Bible, the scriptures say, don't be afraid. It's the most repeated imperative in the whole Bible. Don't be afraid. 365 times, one for every day of the year. Why? Why are we so gripped by it? The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ, by his death and resurrection, liberates us from a slavery which is the result of our fallen condition, the fear of death. And while many people list the fear of failure, or the fear of civic unrest, or the fear of a particular animal, very few people in the poll actually listed the fear of death, but it's the unspoken fear, the scriptures say, which lies at the root of all the others. We know, don't we? And we don't like talking about it, but we have to face it. We all know that we have an expiration date. And the shelf life we possess is not as long as we wish that it were. The exits are clearly marked. And we know this. And so we push it away. We push it back. We push it down. And we wonder. We wonder what will become of us. We're with Woody Allen when he said, I don't fear death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. What of us? What then? Sometimes you'll pick up a newspaper story or a popular book or something like that, and you'll see that it says, I, I was dead, and I'm going to tell you everything I saw. You don't have to wait for popular novels. You don't have to wait for spectacular news programming or whatever else that claims that. Most of those claims turn out to be specious frauds. We already have a voice, a testimony from the grave and back. Our Lord Jesus died and rose again. And in his death, he paid the price for our sin. And in his burial, he conquered the realm of the dead. And by his resurrection, he has brought us eternal life so that you and I, as he said in John 11, even if we die, we live forever with him. And this is at the center of Jesus' words to the Apostle John alone on that island so long ago. John, you don't have to be afraid anymore, and he gave him three reasons. I want to highlight those for you briefly today, three reasons why we don't have to be afraid anymore. Here's the first one. He said, John, 
I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. Now, when Jesus said that, he's actually continuing a quotation from earlier in chapter 1 of Revelation, where he says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord God Almighty. And that word beginning was a very important word for John. He used that word a lot, and he was quoting from the book of Genesis. And here's what God was saying. John, you remember when you wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and you were quoting Genesis when it said, in the beginning God created? John, I want you to remember, now that you're an old man, I don't want you to forget what you wrote. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning. The beginning isn't just a point in time. I'm the beginning. Here's why you don't have to be afraid, John. I created you. I made you. The same God who made the stars and the mountains and the oceans and set the rivers in their course. The God who made the birds and all the fish in the sea and even those iguanas, whatever they were before the fall. (laughs) Now, because of the fall. (laughs) But he made them all and he made you. And that means this morning there isn't a single person sitting in this room or watching online that is an accident, even if that's what your parents told you you were. (laughs) Oh, you're our blessed little accident. We never saw you coming. Don't know how that happened. Yeah, you do. Okay. They may not have seen you coming, but God did. Psalm 139 says, all your days are written in his book when as yet there were not one of them. The scriptures give us a wonderful anthropology about human beings. What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou dost take thought of him, Psalm 8 asks. And then it answers, you have made people, people, just a little bit lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. What's a human worth? What's a little girl worth? What's a little boy worth? What's a teenager worth? Humans are made in God's image. Every single one of us, no matter our race, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our gender, everything about us, no matter what, affected by the fall or not, every single one of us are made in God's image, crowned with glory and honor, just a little bit lower than the angels. There's an impulse in us that knows we were destined for a throne and created for a purpose. And we don't know what it is. And so we struggle to find out. And we have fear of losing what we've achieved and anxiety over what other people may think of us as we run the race. Fear drives us. Why is the fear present when God says, I created you, I fashioned you, I made you in my image. Everything about you is because my hand formed you and made you. Why are we afraid? When we were made in God's image, we rebelled against him. We said, Lord, we would prefer not just to bear your image, we would prefer to be our own gods. And we'll make our own rules and we'll make our own laws. Lord, thank you for giving us life. We'll take it from here. The problem with we'll take it from here when we took it is that like in the Lord of Flies, we weren't ready for that responsibility and we blew it sky high. And the result was fear and death. Fear is the very first thing that Adam and Eve felt after the fall. God came to them. You remember what happened after they fell. They went, 
holy cow, we're naked. And they hid in the trees because they heard God coming to them. Now, God had come to them many times. God had come to them frequently. He had sweet fellowship with them. He had communion with them. But then they hid themselves. And God said, where are you? Now, can we just get real for a second? God didn't say to Adam and Eve, where are you? Because he didn't know where they were. He was saying, where are you? So they could admit where they were. We're over here in the trees. What are you doing in the trees? Well, they said, we heard you and we were scared. The first thing that entered the human heart after the fall was fear. And fear has driven us ever since. The thing that we did was called sin. That was our high treason. It interrupted our communion with God. It introduced a discordant note into the song of our, our culture. It created disharmony where there'd only been beauty. It disturbed not only our relationship with God, creating a chasm that was both spatial and moral between us, that was beyond anything we could bridge, it also destroyed our relationships with one another. Conflict broke out in the human race. The very first murder in history was a fratricide, one brother killing another. And ever since, we've looked at each other with fear, with suspicion. What do they want? What will they take? What will it cost? Someone will get me. Fear came from the fall, and that's why the next thing is so important. Because God is not only our creator, the one who made us in his image and created us with a destiny watching over our lives to bring us through to a conclusion of our lives that is shaped by life, that is shaped by resurrection. Friend, Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week so you could rise from the dead on the last day of history. He's the first and the last. The first day he rose so that on the last day, when he comes, you can rise. God is the one who fashioned you like that. You were made for resurrection. You were made for life. But sin, when it came in, created this, this problem. And that's why the next thing we learn about who Jesus is, not just our creator, but our savior. That's so crucial. He says to John, I'm the first and the last. But then he says, I was, I'm the living one, and behold... I died, and now I am alive forevermore. Why did he die? You see, the wages of sin is death. The outcome of sin is death. When the Bible talks about death, it doesn't mean it just physically, though it includes that. There's physical death, but there's also relational death. You'll hear people say, our marriage died. This relationship is over. Is there hope? For a dead relationship? Yes. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Is there hope for a relationship with God? That chasm, morally, spiritually, so vast we cannot cross it? Yes, because God did not stand at a distance from us and go, over here, I'm over here. Would you please reach out to me? No. God came to us. He crossed the chasm. He became one of us. God became a man so that he could die and pay the penalty for our sin. Why did he do that? Because every single one of you are made in his image and are valuable to him. You are precious to him. A pastor up in West Tennessee, old Methodist pastor named Fred Craddock. That's a great pastor name for an old Methodist Fred Craddock had a, 
a job like a lot of teenage boys do when he was young, mowing lawns. And one of the lawns he mowed was the local cemetery. And as he would mow along in the cemetery, the first week he was there, he was, you know, caring for the area. And he saw an area across a fence line over here where the grass was really, really tall. And he asked the supervisor, do you want me to mow over there? He could see that there were gravestones there in the tall grass. He could barely still make them out. Do you want me to cross the fence and mow over there? And his supervisor said to him, no, you don't need to mow over there. That's the potter's field. He goes, what do you mean? Who's over there? And he goes, that's where the nobodies are. That's where the criminals, the deadbeats, all the people who were too poor to buy their own grave, that's where we buried them. There aren't even any names on the stones over there. You don't need to take care of those graves. Well, if you've ever been to London, you've been to Westminster Abbey, you walk around in there, you go, wow, this is really beautiful, but you're actually walking through a building that's a graveyard. There are people buried in the walls. There are people buried on the floor, and they're impressive people too. Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, David Livingston, Queen Elizabeth I, Mary, Bloody Mary's in there. Don't you know that Resurrection Day at the end of history, Westminster Abbey's going to be a hopping place? <laughs> but, but see, here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether it's Arlington's unknown soldier or Westminster's renown or the forgotten people in Humboldt, Tennessee on Resurrection Day. Every single one of them are sinners in need of a Savior. And it doesn't matter whether you're a king or a criminal. It doesn't matter whether you're a queen or the outcast. It doesn't matter. You were made in God's image. He loves you. He cherishes you. He sent his son to die for you so your sins could be forgiven. And on resurrection morning, you could rise because Jesus said, whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he will have everlasting life. You are precious to God. And Jesus is our Savior. And that's why he says the final thing here. He adds this one, this one beautiful note. He says, and John, here's the other reason you don't have to be afraid. Um, John, I have the keys. I've got the keys. You know that moment when um, you gave the keys to your kids? <laughs> Here's the keys. I'll hand you the keys. And you're trusting them with something. Keys, having keys, that was a symbol of authority, symbol of responsibility, a symbol of kingship, of authority, of lordship. Here's the last thing. Jesus is not only your creator and your savior, he's your lord. He has the keys. You didn't give them to him. Satan didn't give him the keys. Jesus and you sang about it, descended into hell. It's in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell and when he got there, he looked Satan dead in the eye and said, hand over the keys. These are mine now. I own death in the grave. I am the one who's in charge of all of this. And that's why the scriptures say, even when we die, we live. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Nobody ever thought to die was gain. Nobody ever thought that before. When did that change? Well, it changed when Jesus was crucified, when he was, when he was buried, when he rose. It happened for the, for the thief on the cross. The first few hours he was on the cross, he's hurling abuse at Jesus. But then something in Jesus' demeanor, the words that Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. The blood he was shedding, the tears that were being wept, the words that were being said, I thirst. Something happened down in the heart of that guy as he's hanging on the cross. 
And he turns to Jesus and he says, when you have the keys, open the door for me too. When you come in your kingdom, remember me. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Today, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Now can you stop and think about it for just a second? On what basis was that man saved? On what basis did that man have eternal life? That guy, he's hanging there. How much of a chance did that guy have to clean up his act? Did he, he didn't get baptized. He never took communion. Oh, so far as I know, he never joined a life group at Spanish River Church. He never, he never, he never went to church. He never did. He died. And you go, if ever there was a guy who was going to bust hell wide open, not even stopping in Atlanta, not even, not even, just going straight, straight shot. It's that guy. But when you get to heaven, he's going to be part of the welcoming committee, welcoming you. Because what saves us is not anything we have done, but everything that Jesus has done. He's the Lord. He has the keys. He opens the doors. He says, welcome in, all you sinners, all of you addicts, all you hookers. Come on in. And if you go, well, he's letting the hookers in? Yeah, he might even let you in, you self-righteous. I'll stop right there. He's letting people in you wouldn't let in. Thank God you're not God. God has mercy. That's why he sent his son to die. Do you think when that thief on the cross got up there to the gate of heaven that the angel looked at him and went, on what basis are you supposed to be here? What would the guy have said? He'd have said, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. And he would have said, well, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? So, well, I've never heard of it. Well, do you believe in the five points of Calvinism? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints? The guy said, huh? And he said, just a second, I need to go get my supervisor. And the guy would have come over and said, why, why should we let you in? And as the pastor who tells this story originally points out, the man would only be able to respond. The only reason I know I can come in is because the man on the middle cross said I could. My friends, the reason you have the gift of eternal life is not because of anything you've done. The reason you are admitted into the heavenly kingdom is not because of your resume being impressive. The only reason we have eternal life is because Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And when he splits the skies and the trumpet sounds, you will rise. If you do the simple thing that man on the cross did, put your faith in the other man that was on the cross. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, rather than being motivated by fear the rest of your life, you will find that love and peace peace and joy become the deepest motivators of your life and you become what the scriptures call a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And whether you are 8 or 88, it is not too late. It is time for you to say yes to Jesus Christ who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is the one who was dead and behold, he's alive forevermore, the 
one who has the keys of death and hell, the one who made you for a purpose, who knows what your life's destiny is, and the one who, if he comes to dwell in your heart, will lead you every step of the way, all the way home to heaven. Now is the time. Don't wait another day. Why would you wait? I'll finish it with this. Some people are just afraid. They're afraid that what they did was too much. It was too great. It was too great. I've, I've done too much. God won't accept me. I'm too bad. Well, there was a, Jesus tells a story about a young man. You know this story. He took his inheritance. He ran off to a distant country, spent it all on licentious living, raves, orgies, craziness. It, it didn't end well for him. It never does, does it? He ends up in a pig pen. He ends up in a pig pen. He's starving. He wants to eat what the pigs are eating. He goes, you know, I should go back home. I wonder what will happen if I go. I wonder if someone will love me there. Maybe, maybe they'll just let me be a slave. And he turns around and he goes home. And here's what he didn't know. He didn't know that back home was a father who was just waiting for the first sign of that child coming back over the hill. And then he did what every parent here loves to do. Every parent here who loves their kids, you love to embarrass them. I mean, here's, you know, you know, pro tip. If you want to embarrass your kids, kiss them in public. Just run to them and hug them and start kissing them. And that's what the father in this story does. He just runs to him and he starts hugging this pig sty stained, stinking up kid. He just hugs him and all the stink of the kid got on the father who's embracing him. And the father took off his ring and put it on his finger. He put a robe of, of, of beauty and righteousness on him. My friends, that's what's happened at the cross. Jesus has taken our stain and put on us his robe. And the father turned to everybody and said, we have to have a party now. This son of mine was dead, and now he's alive. I'm telling you, the same father that raised his son from the dead will raise you from the dead. Now, friend, right now, raise your heart from the dead so that when you die, you will live forever in the resurrection. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you. You are our creator. You're our savior. You are our Lord. You have the keys. You are the one who will master our hearts and bring us through to a place of joy. We thank you that you rose from the dead on the first day of the week so that we could be raised from the dead on the last day of history. And that means that from this day forward, fear will have no dominion over us through Christ our Lord. Amen.